So let's open here in Matthew 12. And before I do, let me pray one more time. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you that like children, we know that we can come to our Father not understanding the, what's going on in our world. We don't have to comprehend all the complexities of what's happening in our world, our society. All we have to do is look to you. All we have to do is come as children, not childish, but childlike to our Father because we know that you are true. We know that you have everything in control and we know for all of us who have been called, who love you, you are working things together for our good and to glorify your name. And so Jesus, this morning we ask that you would glorify your name, that you would lift yourself up. And as we uh, enter into your word, I pray that we would enter this in rest. So if there are children in homes right now, those of my brothers and sisters who have children, and maybe the house kind of feels frantic, trying to hush everyone, Jesus, I ask again in, the name, in your name, the name that is above all other names, that you would speak tamim, peace, hush, be still over our hearts and over our homes. Help us to come to you, Jesus, our rest and our Savior, and receive today's daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're here in Matthew 12, and I'll start at verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, that is the temple, the tabernacle. And they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, Jesus went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and it was restored to normal like the other hand. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. Jesus did incredible miracles in the in the presence and right before the eyes of his greatest opponents. And yet seeing, they were not believing. That was promised in the scroll of Isaiah. So let me ask you a question here. How is sheltering in place going these days? Change gears for just a second. Has sheltering in place been restful? <laughs> 
maybe some of us, <laughs> yeah, some of us are thinking, uh, I'm, I've gotten enough rest. I've had my full. I'd like to be done. Some of us are going, this hasn't been restful at all. Let me ask you this. Has it brought about, as we've sheltered in place, has this sheltering in place brought about the change that we've hoped and planned it would? While the physical landscape of our cities, states, and countries may have quiet calm, the digital landscape has been a storm of people trying to stay socially connected and finding creative ways to still work, earn money, got to keep providing for themselves and their families. And you know what? I can understand that. I've had a lot of those thoughts. People are asking, why is all of this happening? Again, I would defer to Habakkuk. Habakkuk couldn't make sense of the greater picture because he didn't have the bird's eye view of what was happening. And so he went to the one who did. People are asking, what's really behind this pandemic? What's happening with this panic? Whether this is COVID-19, whether it's been as serious an existential threat as some have made it out or not, I believe we keep looking for help, healing, and rest in all the wrong places. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. I'll look here in my, my Bible. Right before the passage we're about to go in, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not coincidentally, like I said, this comes right before the passage we're about to go into here in Matthew 12, where Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees on that very thing, Sabbath. What is Sabbath? What does it mean to Sabbath? My encouragement to all of us is that we rest. That's right. <laughs> Forget about what the governments and the rulers and the authorities of this day and age are saying. Jesus is calling us to rest in him. Just like he did that day, he's still calling us. Some of you might be thinking, that's all I've been doing, Jake, is resting. <laughs> the, rest, <laughs> the rest I'm encouraging us to take is in our Father, in his work, his ways, not in ourselves and our work. You see, we tend to think rest <clears throat> comes from what we do but that's not true. See, we work hard to earn a good living for ourselves and for our family, and then we rest from what we've accomplished. The rest I'm talking about, true rest, is not accomplished. The true rest, the rest that we all long for, and the longer we live and the older we get, the more we crave, that true rest is received. It's not accomplished. It's received through faith. Hebrews 4.2 explains this further. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they, that is ancient Israel, had also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so again, I wanna encourage us to rest, be still. And the words you're about to hear from Jesus in this teaching, I pray, Jesus, that you would unite our hearts 
with yours, that we would receive your word in faith. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse four, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. We're gonna be looking at some folks today who have read and taught the Sabbath as being the authorities on it. But they failed to receive it because they had no faith when they heard it. Matter of fact, they had no faith when they saw it. Further on in Hebrews 4, verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And so if you want real rest, I urge and encourage you to take God at his word. Don't expound it, don't add to it, don't diminish it. Take God at his word, trust in him, and he will give you rest, I am certain of that. Rest also, lastly, before we get into the passage, rest isn't doing nothing, rest is ceasing from our work. That's rest for us. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just sit around on couches like potatoes. We follow God in his work. His work is easy, his work is light, and it's actually fulfilling as it feeds us. John 4, 34 tells us that. So let's dig in here now in Matthew 12, starting at verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they, t- they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. See, something we need to understand is the Pharisees didn't actually have a problem with the disciples picking heads of grain from fields that didn't belong to them. That specific thing was actually allowed for and detailed in the Mosaic Law, as we see in Deuteronomy 23, 24. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So take what you need to satisfy but don't gather in a harvest. The Pharisees' issue wasn't that they were taking grain that didn't belong to them, because again, that was in the law, and they knew the law. The Pharisees' issue was that this was work. I'll show here in a second. They treated the plucking of the heads of grain and then the crushing of the kernel to get the kernel out, they treated that like reaping a harvest and threshing the wheat. They had turned that into work. Even though, as you go through the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law, that's never actually written. That's never actually described by the Lord himself. They believed this was work, and it was happening on Shabbat. I'll tell you what, I do not have enough time today to to share with you all the things that I've been learning about Shabbat from the eyes of a Pharisee or the Jewish people under the Mosaic Law. It's deep. There's a lot of depth to it. But, The Lord had given Israel a commandment starting back with Moses. We're gonna turn here to Exodus 16, 22 to see the first 
the first time Shabbat observance is commanded. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus 16, 22. Exodus 16, 22. We'll read through verse 30. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. So some background here. The Jewish people, Israel, have been rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're now in the wilderness. And if you know the wilderness they're in, it's not a very hospitable place. Food and water (laughs) is not in plenty. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted. That's exactly what the Lord wanted. So now they've been crying out, where's our food? We're gonna die. And what does God do? He brings them to depend on him. And so on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. God had promised a supernatural bread that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, called manna. And this manna would literally come down out of heaven. They'd wake up the next morning and they would see this on the ground. Now on the sixth day, the day before Shabbat, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. But you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Giving you some understanding as to where these Pharisees are coming from. Now, we've only just gotten started with their perspective. It gets better. Seems pretty simple there, right? Let me ask you something. Why did the nation of Israel end up in the wilderness? because God had rescued them out of Egypt. Well, why did God rescue them out of Egypt? Because they had been slaves there for over 400 years. Well, how did that happen? Because there was a famine long ago that affected the ancient world and it led Israel, AKA Jacob, and his household to settle in Egypt. We're about to go into that here when Rick comes back. He's gonna continue this epic saga with the nation of Israel, with Joseph there at the forefront. Jacob and his household came to Egypt and settled there to escape a famine that was ravaging the ancient world. Decade after decade and century after century, what was a household of 70 people turned into a nation of millions. The point I'm making is this. Israel ended up in Egypt in order to find food and work so they could feed their families. And all of us Bible students know that Egypt is a picture of the world. In time, Israel became enslaved literally to the work of Egypt. The Lord freed them from this slavery and brought them to a place where they had to trust and depend on him for their daily bread and water. 
I believe that fits our situation now better than, well, I think any time in our modern history here. We're in a place where, boy, the government's doing their best to take care of our needs, but uh, I think it's safe to say there are a lot of folks who are still waiting on that paycheck. And this isn't to disparage our government. It's to redirect our eyes on the one who truly sustains us, who gives us our food. Isn't it ironic that the place that promised work and food for life ended up enslaving them to death? Now compare that to the place that had no promise of work. They're out in the wilderness and there was no promise of food. This place is inhospitable, especially to a nation of millions of people wandering out in the desert wilderness. Yet that ended up being their place of food and freedom. Food and freedom. This Sabbath that God made for Israel was out of compassion. I want us to understand that. I want us to hear that. The reason God gave Israel the Sabbath was out of a heart of compassion for his people. It wasn't meant to be a burden. Think about that. You don't have to work for a full day. I'll take care of all your needs. Just sit, rest, cease from all of your work, and I will provide for your needs. That kind of goes in opposition to the human spirit, though. We want to work. We want to strive. We want to ascend. We want to accomplish. All for what, though? All for what? The Sabbath wasn't meant to be a burden that enslaved them to performance. The Sabbath doesn't motivate performance at all. Sabbath motivates mercy. In Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, The Sabbath, I highly recommend it, he explains just how far the Pharisees and later the rabbis in uh, today's modern Judaism took in extrapolating and adding to God's law. He writes, altogether the rabbis came up with about 1,500 different rules and regulations concerning the Sabbath. That's exhausting. That number just overwhelms me. (laughs) These were derived, these were taken from 39 areas of work which were forbidden on the Sabbath day. How did they get to that? Well, I don't know if I have enough time to share that, but we'll, we'll, we'll see here in a second. Here's the interesting thing. God's word listed out 39 laws in Sabbath that were forbidden for the temple. This religious spirit here that we see the Pharisees operating in was actually foretold in Isaiah chapter 28, verse nine. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. Further down at verse 12, he who said to them, that is God to the people Israel, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen, so the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken and snared and taken captive. God has, God has been working to give us, to show us, and to help us enter in to his rest. But hardened hearts say, no, I can do it. I got this. Thanks, but no thanks. Our culture here in America equates work and how much we can do with being a morality even. 
we think being a workaholic is a virtue. Our brother Josiah has gone for a number of years working in that industry. There's nothing virtuous about being enslaved to your work, right, brother? <laughs> nothing. Let's pick up here at verse three. The Pharisees go, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said, verse three, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. The problem wasn't that Jesus was breaking the Mosaic law. It's that he was breaking the Pharisees and scribes' interpretation of the law. I've heard and read lots going on on social media regarding people's fear of getting, you know, arrested, um, taken in. I've even heard of crazy accounts where criminals who are clearly breaking the law are being released and someone who is violating the shelter in place is getting arrested. Um, it's amazing what we do when we are trying to work out and show ourselves as good people. It's amazing how we're so quick to betray our neighbor, our brother and sister, all in the name of being a good person. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, or I guess I'll call him for the rest of the time, Arnie G., got a long name. <clears throat> he helps us understand, again, what, what the Sabbath is meant. The major concept of the Sabbath in Judaism is that, is, is that of menucha in Hebrew, the word for rest. You see, Sabbath doesn't actually translate literally rest. Sabbath means ceasing, to desist, put an end to. The word Sabbath has actually also been referred to in God's judgment, interestingly enough. What's been understood as rest could also be a picture of God's judgment. The irony here is many of the times we see in the minor prophets, for example, that word of Sabbath being used as judgment is because the people aren't entering his rest. How ironic. Anyway, so on Shabbat, or Sabbath, work is banished and it's replaced by menucha, rest. Here's another interesting thing to check out. The Sabbath isn't even part of the Edenic, Adamic, Noahic, or Ab Abrahamic covenant. You will not see this as an ordinance, a law, through the whole book of Genesis. We haven't seen it once. God rested on the seventh day from his work. He didn't command it, though, to Adam and Eve. I find that really interesting. God rested from his creative work on the seventh day, but he never commanded human observance until Moses, as we see here in De um, sorry, Exodus 16.22. Arnie, good old Arnie G., points out that there are many minor concepts involved in the Sabbath, as we've seen. The Pharisees took the 39 laws and then they expounded upon them and created a whole list of 1,500 laws. But out of these many minor concepts involved in the Sabbath, out of the centuries of rabbinic law and teaching, there are three age-long foundations, and I find this fascinating. The first minor concept is this. The Sabbath enables one to devote him or herself fully one day a week to the task of becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Theologian Chad Bird explains that Pharisees pledged themselves 
to living the priestly lifestyle connected to temple worship. The Pharisees were not priests. And matter of fact, just a quick delineation, not all scribes were Pharisees and not all Pharisees were scribes. Their mission, the Pharisees, was to proselytize the rest of Israel into becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, becoming the true Israel. The second minor concept of the Sabbath prevents one from becoming enslaved to a secular activity, showing freedom from enslavement to Egypt, who is a picture of the world system. That's a second minor concept. The third here is the Sabbath proves one's trust in God, that he will provide even without the material gain of working on the Sabbath. It violates all human rationale and logic, especially in an American culture where many of us have been raised and have grown up thinking intrinsically, man, if, if you wanna get it done, you gotta do it yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We treat it as a, a virtue, but God's not impressed by our hard work any more than Jesus was impressed by the Pharisees' diligence to perform the law. Jesus pinpoints the Sabbath perfectly in Mark 2.27, which by the way, Mark chapter two and Matthew 12 detail the same account. So I encourage you to read that on your own time. But Jesus says this in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I was talking with Rick this last week and he heard it from somewhere and I've heard it a number of places. I don't know who the original source is, but it's been said that the Sabbath Sabbath has kept the Jews. The Jews haven't kept the Sabbath. The Sabbath has kept the Jews. Shabbat, the Sabbath, was given for us. Here's your first point. The Sabbath is to rest in our Father, experience his freedom, and trust in his faithfulness. In Isaiah, he talks about feeding, cultivating on faithfulness. Literally, it means to feed on the Lord's faithfulness. That's rest. We're not feeding on our faithfulness, our best efforts. My question is, how many of us are resting from our work? How many of us are truly taking this time and devoting quality time to be with him, to be free in him, and to trust in his provision for our needs and lives? Um, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> You've heard Pastor Les say this a number of times, and it's always true. Uh, those who have to teach this end up having to consume it and practice it and live it out firsthand. And I won't tell you all the things that have happened to me this week, but the Lord has been very good to keep my, my eyes centered on his rest. This whole time going through his word. Last night, I went back to just uh, fine tune some things in the teaching, make sure my notes were right, I didn't have typos. Long story short, um, my allergies were kicking up. All of a sudden, things started to get hard. This whole week, studying through this, it's been a joy. It's filled my heart with joy. I've, I've been truly refreshed reading this for my life. And then last night, there was an assault on this joy and this rest. I remember passing out on the couch. I was wheezing because my asthma was kicking in. I remember falling asleep, asking the Lord to please. <laughs> this is not the time. I need to be rested for tomorrow. Well, I did not get much sleep. And yet I was woken up by my wife and I kind of jolted to, to being awake. 
And I tell you what, I got better rest in the four or five hours I had last night than the last five or six nights put together. Because, thanks to our Father, he had been teaching me what it looks like to have to rest in him. Trust him for his provision. If you feel exhausted, rest in his grace. That's his power. Rest in the strength and stamina of his spirit. Now, Jesus' answer to the Pharisees is referenced to 1 Samuel 21. So if you want, you can turn there with me, or you can just listen along as I read this. Jesus talks to the Pharisees, what about David? He went into the tabernacle, the holy place, and he ate the bread that was not right for him to eat, only for the priests, and then he gave it to the guys with him. The Pharisees were not disparaging David. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse three, now therefore, David says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated, there is holy bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So what does this have to do with being with women? I won't get into that right now. The point is, David and his guys had not been taking part in anything unholy, no unholy activity, nothing profane or fleshly. Verse six, so the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the, the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Jesus refers to this, why? I think it's interesting. If they asked me, how, how, do, you, how do you figure this? I wouldn't have gone to 1 Samuel 21. So why does Jesus refer to this passage? In referring to 1 Samuel 21, Jesus compares himself to Israel's illustrious King David, who took the bread that was only permissible for the priest to eat, and he ate it and he shared it with his men. Jesus is making a huge implication here by comparing himself to David, which the Pharisees might be picking up on this. David is also from the lineage. He is the lineage that the Messiah would come from. I believe Jesus is already hinting at his authority as the son of man, the Messiah, the Moshiach, promised through the Davidic line. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse five. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? What? Jesus doesn't stop here. He compares himself to the temple priests, which by the way, the Pharisees who were not temple priests had taken an oath. They were like a sect, a brotherhood, and they had devoted themselves to live a life with the purity of the temple priests. They wanted to live like priests. And here Jesus is exposing their lack in understanding the priestly lifestyle. You condemn me for breaking the Sabbath, you who wanna live like the priests, but you fail to realize that the priests themselves violate the law that you hold yourselves to. The priests, those who were supposed to be the models of righteous living, seem to be violating it the most. How do the Pharisees reconcile this? It gets better. Look at verse six. 
but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Whoa. What did he just say? Jesus. Okay, David, got it. The priest, you make a good argument. But you've gone too far now. He claims something beyond all previous comparisons. Not only does Jesus compare himself to King David and the temple priests, he goes so far as to elevate himself as better than the temple itself. Wow. John 2.18, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They were constantly questioning his authority. And he constantly, in his compassion, went ahead and humored their questions. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And here we see a contrast. Um, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Talks about the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. The Pharisees, espousing themselves to be spiritual, lived naturally. They looked at everything and lived their life based on the physical reality in front of their eyes. But Jesus was showing them that the temple was just a dim dim image that foreshadowed the true temple. Well, what temple is that? First of all, we need to understand that the temple was the quintessential to Jewish life. Before it was burned down, the temple was the center of their identity. It was everything that the Jewish people revolved around. It was the manifestation of God's glory and perfection to Israel. Now, in the Apostle John's revelation, he writes of the new city of Jerusalem, Chapter 22, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse 22. John writes, I saw no temple in it, that is the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Here's your second point. Jesus is our Sabbath rest because in him, our lives are complete. Jesus is the righteous king. Jesus is the high priest described in Hebrews chapter four. And Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the temple where everything is performed and made perfect and complete. It's in Jesus that we find our rest. Our rest is not at the end of a work week after we've labored hard and we look at our accomplishments. There is something enjoyable in that. But if that's where your life stops short of, you're missing it. I have missed it for so many years. And we continue to miss it. Why do we have what we have? Is it not from him? Those of us in the church will give mental assent to know that the reason we can draw a paycheck, the reason we have clothes on our body, the reason we have a roof on our heads, the reason we have everything we have right down to the breath in our lungs and the blood in our veins is because of him. And yet we go on living our life contrary to that so often. Second point is Jesus is our Sabbath rest because in him, our lives are complete. His work completes for us to give us rest. Now, look here in verse seven. How am I doing on time? All right, we're good. Great. He goes on and he says to the Pharisees, 
But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. That's the irony here. The Pharisees were all about the temple worship, which was full, constant, never ending with sacrifices and offerings. Man trying to give up our best efforts to make right with God. Now the temple priests are a picture of Jesus, as I've already alluded to. And the reason God gave Israel the Mosaic law was not so that they could perform it to perfection, but to realize how short they come of it. And it gave them something to yearn and long for, which we see promised through the Davidic line, through the prophets. There was this Messiah who would come, sent from God, to restore Israel. I believe it's in the prophet Isaiah, and I believe it's mentioned more than just his scroll, where it talks about one day during the reign and rule of Messiah, the people of Israel, all of them, will sit in their vineyards, under their figs, and it's a picture of prosperity and peace. And it's not accomplished by the work of the people of Israel. It's given as a gift by the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. That being said, Jesus here in verse seven says, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent if you'd known this. Well, what's interesting is Jesus had said this not long ago in Matthew 9, 15. In Matthew 9, 15, he's speaking to the scribes. In Mark, when we see that parallel passage, we see that he's also talking to the Pharisees. The scribes were the intellectual, educational aristocracy of Israel. They knew the law better than anyone else. Everyone went to them to know what God's word said. And yet Jesus holds them to this level that they held themselves to and he goes, you're missing it. You're missing it. God's law was not so that you could offer sacrifices. God's law was for you to be able to enter his rest, ironically. And then we see it again here in chapter 12. If you had known, they're still not getting it. Why? Why are they not getting it? I defer back to the beginning of this teaching in Hebrews 2. The words they heard were not united in faith. It fell on spiritually deaf ears because their heart was hard. I'm getting ahead of myself already. So, verse seven, it was out of Jesus's confidence in his authority as God's son that he lived a life of compassion. Jesus didn't come on the scene showing off who he was. Hear ye, hear ye, all ye come to me, I'm it. No, everything he said and everything he did was to point people to their father in heaven. And as he did that, God the Father glorified his son. That's the beauty of this relationship. But it doesn't stop with Jesus. Jesus gave us the example to follow in this way. Do not get tied up around the axle trying to be a good person, because you won't. You never will. We have some people here in the scriptures who, who did it better than anybody these days, and yet they fell miserably short of it. The harder we work, the more sin we make. We were just in Genesis in the beginning of Genesis not too long ago. And I'll never forget one of the things that Pastor Rick pointed out was as Adam and Eve were gifted the garden and given everything to enjoy life. And every day they got to walk in the garden literally with God and talk and share in life forever. God said, one thing, don't touch that tree. It was their work in plucking the fruit, eating it, it was their work that brought sin into the world. 
We need to cease striving and know that he is God. Remember his ways. Walk in his word. Depend on his spirit. It was out of Jesus' confidence in his authority to the Father that he lived a life of compassion. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, a lawyer, probably a member of the Pharisees, asked Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, the Pharisees were all about showing off how much they loved the Lord by how much they knew. But it revealed their lack of love for their neighbor. If you can't love each other, you're not loving God. I've shared this before. And I remember one time someone came up to me after Sunday teaching and asked me, you know, love what you had to say here, but, you know, loving God comes first, and I don't disagree with that. But how, what is the best evidence that I'm loving God? It's in the way I treat my brothers and my sisters. How are you doing in that? Now, I'm not, I'm not questioning that to uh, make you feel condemned because I'm not perfect either. Remember, it's not about what we can perform it's about what he has done for us. First John 4, 7 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 20, 1 John 4, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I shared this a little bit back, about a week ago, with our uh, Connect folks. Math, in Matthew 24, I believe it's verse 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're asking him about the signs of the times and how do we know when all this will happen? How do we know when this age will come to a close and we'll see the righteous reign of the Messiah? The world as we know it comes to an end. How will we know? What will we look for? And one of the things Jesus says is because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. Does that sound like the world we live in today? The Pharisees, who were always jockeying for position and prestige, made the biggest blunder of them all. Truly spiritual people desire to show compassion, not condemnation. Because compassion, not intellect, reveals a true, wise, and godly person. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, there's that word, and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Jesus's compassionate conduct came out of his confidence in the Father. Matthew 9, 35. We see a, a, a clear distinction between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is a rabbi. He is a rabbi. He's amongst that crowd, but he's not like the rest of them. In Matthew 9, 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, empathy, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You know what's interesting? Is if you go to Ezekiel 34, I believe, there is a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel because the shepherds that have been given by God to care for the people were not. They were creating burdens. They were, quite honestly, tearing the sheep apart. I believe that's prophetic of the Pharisees. Jesus comes with confidence in the Father, and so he gives compassion. The Pharisees come insecure, trying to esteem themselves. We've heard this, right? The world teaches self-esteem, self-confidence. I say, pooey, that ain't from God. Our confidence comes from him. Here's the third point. Confidence in the Father compels us to compassion. Confidence in our Father compels us in compassion. Not self-righteous indignation. Not self-righteous scrutiny. Jesus' confidence in the Father, not himself, gave him authority and he used his authority to serve others. You know, that sounds familiar to me. I think we've been reading about a guy like this in Genesis chapter 40. Pastor Rick just taught through this, showing how Joseph foreshadowed Jesus as the suffering servant revealed in Isaiah 53. Jesus suffered his flesh to death so that others might have hope and experience freedom in true life. I've been watching this um, show I believe it's called Stiesel. It's on Netflix, and it's, uh, it's kind of a, a glimpse into uh, the lives of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. It's fascinating. Thanks to my time through Matthew and, and wanting to know more about these Pharisees, I'm wanting to know, where do these guys get off? Why do they think this way? And so through a series of rabbit trails, I've landed on this show now. I'm understanding more about today's ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, which really harkens back from the Pharisees. And as you watch it, it's a fascinating story, but there's a heaviness to it. People are trying to live by a series of traditional laws. It's heavy. And you see it on the faces of everyone in the story. The Pharisees had self-confidence. They based who they were on their self-esteem and self-proclaimed authority. And so they used it to condemn and lord it over others. In their self-confidence and their self-esteem, they used it to condemn and lord it over others. You see the difference here? Based on where your confidence is, is going to dictate your behavior and treatment of others. So where is our confidence? Micah 6, verse six. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Just FYI, that word kindness here is also translated mercy, which is the word Jesus uses for compassion here in Matthew 12, 7. Jesus is actually quoting from Hosea 6, 6, though, which reads, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I don't, de I don't delight in and I'm not impressed by your performance in life. What I want 
is are you loyal to me? What I want is do you care to know my thoughts? So here's a question. I remember I posed this to Connect about a week ago. Connectors, if you're listening, check it out. What do loyalty and compassion have to do with each other? Jesus says, I desire compassion. And he's quoting from Hosea, which says loyalty. Well, what do loyalty and compassion have to do with each other? I've already kind of mentioned it. Our loyalty to God's character compels us to compassion. So then you might ask the question, what is God's character? What is his nature? I think it's summed up really well in Galatians 5.23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That word literally is meekness, power under control. And the last one is self-control. God is spirit. And so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, not in sacrifices and performance. John 4, 24, Jesus says that. If you truly want to worship God, worship him in spirit and in truth. Not law and not precept upon precept or line upon line. Jesus brought freedom to us. 2 Corinthians 3.17 tells us, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's why Jesus came. He fulfilled all these prophecies throughout the gospel accounts as the Messiah who suffered serving others out of his flesh to give them life. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to be compassionate on us. He came to comfort us. He came to give us rest from his work. He worked so that we could rest. The religious spirit seeks to trap you with claims of shoulds and should nots. I've learned that one from Les. He's brought that up to me a number of times. Don't get wrapped up into that game. It's not about shoulds and should nots. The religious spirit seeks to trap you in shoulds and should nots. But love True love, not the law, covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8. So when I was looking up, I knew the reference. Sometimes I feel like I might be more Jewish than I realize. I don't know name and number references very well. But when I hear a phrase, I go, oh, I know where that is. <laughs> so I go to look up the reference. And as I look up 1 Peter 4, 8, I start at 1 Peter 4, 1, which reads, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Arm yourselves with what purpose? Suffering in the flesh. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has, and here's the key, ceased from sin. Quit striving in the flesh. Quit trying to work things out for you in your life. The more you work, the more sin there is. I'm not saying we're called to be lazy. I'm saying that we're not supposed to create our work and feel accomplished on our best efforts. Because the more we do it, the further we go down into sin, we sink. But when we follow Jesus in his work, we enter his rest. He goes on in verse two, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but to live the rest of the time in flesh for the will of God. Joseph in Genesis is the picture, is a picture of the suffering Messiah. He suffered in his flesh because he lived the will of God in his life. Jesus suffered in the flesh to the point of death that he ceased from sin. Remember Sabbath? What does that mean? Ceasing, putting an end to. 
It means ceasing to desist and put an end to. That's the Sabbath. Jesus literally lived his life in flesh to put an end to the sin that enslaved our flesh to decay and death. Why? So that we can finally enter his rest, spirit, mind, and body. I want you to know that. These aren't a bunch of spiritual platitudes that Jesus proclaims. The spiritual rest is what emanates from the inward man or woman and it extends to the outside and it brings healing to our physical body. That's what the love of God does for those who trust and believe in Jesus. And so my question to some of you maybe listening is, do you? Do you trust in him? The Pharisees knew the word of God and yet they failed to see the word of God as he stood right before them. So I'm gonna try and wrap this up kind of quicker here. We're gonna move along a little faster here towards the end. Matthew 12, eight, he goes on. After he tells them, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. For the son of man, which is, by the way, a Jewish euphemism referring to the Messiah, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Real quick point. Only Jesus has the power to give you rest. Let me repeat that one more time. Only Jesus has the power to give you rest, true rest. All right, we're gonna continue here in verse nine. Departing from there, Jesus went into their synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered and they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Let me just point this out. Jesus doesn't say, be lazy on the Sabbath. He says, do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. This is the one that kills me. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus Christ comes in compassion. And what do they seek to do? They seek to conspire to condemn. The hard thing for me is if I'm honest with myself, I find more often than not, I can more easily relate to the Pharisees than I can with Jesus. Now here's what's interesting. Turn with me to Mark 3. Just uh, several pages over, Mark 3, verse one. I'll give you a second to turn there. This is the parallel to what we just read here in Matthew. And it gives us a little more detail on what happened here. Jesus entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him, scribes and Pharisees. They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal, them on, heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians, some of their enemies, against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. 
This is where I want to finish. The Pharisees were so full of pride. And so because of that, their hearts were hardened by bitterness. There are a number of people in this world who feel bitter towards the things written in this book because Jesus is the light and he exposes our deeds. Jesus exposed the Pharisees' heart by showing them their lack of understanding of God's word. Bitterness, they were full of it. That's why their hearts were hardened. Bitterness is like poison to the spirit. It will kill you after a while. Christ's compassion, though, is the antidote to our withered and bittered hearts so we can experience refreshment and rest with him forever. Here's the last point. Without Christ's compassion, our bitter sin will rob us of his rest. So let's dial down. This season we're in, sheltering in place, is not gonna last much longer. We already see some people squirming out of their skin, already starting to do things that we hadn't seen in a couple weeks. You know what's interesting? Is there have been video footage and, and photos of natural wildlife coming into cities and towns and the roads. Uh, in Africa, there's this main stretch of highway and lions are just lying on the roads. Places where no one sees wildlife coming out. It's interesting to me what happens when humanity dials down what God is able to restore and bring to life and bring into the open. Now, this is not a message to promote nature and wildlife. This message is to show us who Jesus is. Without Christ's compassion, our bitter sin will rob us of his rest. Last, uh, last thought here, if uh, Josiah wants to come on up, bro. I find it interesting Leviticus 25, one through five, God had given a commandment to the people of Israel through the priests that on the seventh year, every seventh year, there was to be a rest on the land. No one was to do work. All your crops, all your fields, all your vineyards, all your hard labors, cease from it for a year. And everyone eat freely from the fallow fields and let the, all the way down to the beasts of burden. And Israel, given the law, didn't do it. They rejected his rest. They didn't trust in his provision. They didn't devote themselves to quality time with him, letting him feed and fuel their souls. And so you know what happened? Some time later, I think I just hit my mic. The interesting thing is, God had commanded them to rest the land, and they didn't. And so we see God use a foreign agent to exact that rest for the land. Judah was taken out into exile into Babylon for 70 years, precisely down to the very day. And what I find ironic is those 70 years add up to every sabbatical year of rest that Israel refused to observe. He's, he's, he's calling us, Rest in me, trust in me. Cease from your work and rest in my work. I've done it for you. Follow my ways. 
and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. And so he exacted that for the land. I've wondered to myself, I don't think this is necessarily our Babylonian exile moment, but I do find it interesting that there have been things taken out of our control, forcing us to have to stop, to cease, desist. And I believe, forget what the governments say, forget about what all the scholars and the, the brains out there are telling us about this pandemic. Go beyond that. We see in Daniel that there is a spiritual power presiding over the physical, natural realm of man. And I believe there are things happening in the spiritual realm we can't even believe. We wouldn't believe it if we saw it. My encouragement to all of us, brothers and sisters, is that we dial down and we spend time taking, the, taking advantage of this time of rest to draw near to him, to devote ourselves to him, to rest in him, and to rest and trust in his provision for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your word. And uh, I thank you that, one, I can't do anything to earn your love. You did it for me. While I was still an enemy, you performed the work on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. All I have to do is receive it. All I have to do is to believe in you, trust in you, surrender to you with my life. If I give up this old dead heart, you won't try and bring it back to life. You'll take my dead heart and you give me a new one and you will come and live in me and empower my life, giving me rest and refreshment, rest for my soul on a daily, consistent basis. So Jesus, I pray for all the brothers and sisters taking part with me right now in the word, that for us, that we would continue to be sanctified in your rest, that we would surrender and spend time in your Sabbath. And for anyone who might be listening to this or watching this, know this, if you are tired and you are exhausted and you are confused, there is someone calling out your name right now, inviting you to enter his rest. He's done it all for you. All you gotta do is receive him. Jesus, we thank you again. And we offer this up to you, trusting that the word that you have sent out will perform what you want it to. I just ask for us that our hearts would be bowed in surrender to your love and compassion towards us, to receive in faith what you offer freely and abundantly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.